This is a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations with host Leah Lem. COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. Anine, hello, I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech, and thank you for joining me for an in-depth conversation exploring how Indian country in Minnesota is responding and adapting to the current pandemic. Today on the show, what have we learned during this time? We're over half a year into a pandemic that's brought many topics to the surface, including health inequities, injustice, and also the resiliency of our communities. We'll hear from two Minnesota leaders and their take. We'll hear from Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan from the White Earth Nation. We talk school, the Native vote, and much more. And we'll hear from Melissa Townsend, who talked with Patina Park, who is Minikanju Lakota and the Director of Tribal State Relations and Systems Implementation at the State of Minnesota. And we'll hear more about the partnership between the tribes and the state. I'm glad to be able to share the words from both these leaders with you today. But first, election season is well underway. Lawn signs are out in the neighborhoods. Ads are popping up everywhere. Even though the Indian Citizenship Act was signed in 1924, there were barriers to voting for Native people. In 1970, the Voting Rights Act was passed where major restrictions facing American Indians and Alaska Native voters were removed in every state. A nonpartisan campaign called Native Vote was initiated by the National Congress of American Indians, or NCAI. Here's a message from NCAI's video, Every Native Vote Counts. We stood united when we were told to move on, that our voices did not count. We fought and continue to fight for change. We continue to make our voices heard because we are still here. Our traditions are still strong. Our vote is our voice, and every Native vote counts. Tribal and non-tribal elections make relevant policy decisions that affect tribes and Native people, and more and more Native people are holding leadership positions in state and federal government. The Native vote has even been critical in electing some leaders across the country. You can check out Native Vote at nativevote.org. Next, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan and I get a chance to chat about what she's learned over the past year and a half, and we talk about the Native Vote, and we also reflect on Justice Ginsburg's legacy. Here's our conversation. Bonjour, welcome, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. Thank you so much. I'm really, I'm really happy to be able to be here with you today. Thank you. Can you please take a moment to introduce yourself, your tribal affiliation, and how you spend your time? <laughs> sure. Um, well, uh, I am the Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Minnesota. Uh, I am uh, White Earth Ojibwe. Uh, Anishinaabekwe, um, uh, how do I spend my time? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, uh, right now, I spend uh, a lot of my time, um, you know, working to ensure that we're doing everything possible to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic um, in my day job. But I also am a mom of a seven-year-old second grader who 
is just taking the world by storm. And I spend a lot of time with my awesome husband, Tom, and uh, we like to get out into the woods. (laughs) Wonderful. So how's it going for you and your family right now? Uh, You mentioned school, you mentioned second grade. How's that going? It is, it's pretty good. Uh, I think it sort of depends on the day. Some days it's, it's great. Other days um, it is a hot mess, but I think that that is, you know, a really similar experience for folks uh, across the state. Today, my daughter just went uh, to school for the first time. Uh, she just started hybrid. So her, her class is about six kids total, um, you know, and it was a good day. I think it's just been an adjustment for, for everybody. Uh, and, you know, that connecting uh, with, with community, I think is something that we all crave. And so, you know, she's able to do that safely or as safely as possible with her, her teachers and other students. That feels like a, a positive thing, um, at least, at least for now in our lives. But ask me again tomorrow, I might have a totally different answer for you. Uh, but I think, you know, I think kids are really paying attention, uh, which is a good thing. And they are certainly, um, watching us and how we respond to these things. I feel that. I don't know how, if you feel that like as a, as a mom, like you're just holding that sort of all the time. Uh, there's such sponges and like, you know, they, they, they hear it and they learn. Totally. So I went into her room and she was doing this um, distance learning and they were watching a video on the 1918 flu pandemic. Mm. And she said, I was like, okay. Uh, um, and she said, mom, this happened a hundred years ago. She's like, we're going to get through it. Mm. It was just sort of this moment where I was like, yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> it, was, it was helpful. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that. So let's see. A lot has happened in the last, what, half a year, over half a year with the pandemic. All these inequities that we know have been the case uh, have surfaced. I'm sure you've learned a lot, as have we all. But is there something that you've learned in the past six months that really jumps out to you as being something that you're really going to hold on to and move forward with? Well, I think... Um, (laughs) I've learned a lot about a lot of things that I didn't think I was going to learn about, like saliva, right? (laughs) You know, we talk talk a lot about, you know, um, disease and the pandemic and um, contact tracing and just uh, a lot of things that I didn't necessarily think I'd be spending my time doing. Um, But I do think the thing that, you know, that I have learned, uh, similar to what we just talked about with our kiddos, is is, um, adaptation. Mm -hmm. And we have to constantly learn and then relearn as we get new information. You know, six months ago, we were just learning about COVID-19. And although we have learned a tremendous amount uh, over the last several months, we will continue to learn about this this disease and the impact of, of how people become ill, who is uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic, what the long-term health effects are, all of those things are things that, uh, that we're learning more about every day. But for the governor and I, we, one of the things that, that really, I think, feeds us, it has been being in community all across, all across the state. And uh, we're both extroverts. And so, you know, the, the challenge of 
needing to, to maintain distance um, from folks has, has been hard on, on us as it has been on everyone. But we have been able to kind of adapt the way that we uh, engage with folks. Part of the, the impact, right, is we've seen the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, on Native communities. Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were able to respond to that. And COVID-19 simply laid bare the inequities that we all know already exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were able to put together our community resiliency and recovery work group, which specifically uh, identifies across each area where we're working in the pandemic, uh, how to center equity in our response using an anti-racism toolkit, which now we have adopted that anti-racism toolkit for how we put together budget proposals and mm -hmm. policy proposals in the 2021 session and beyond. So there are things that while, you know, this crisis is not anything I would ever wish on anyone, um, there are things that are coming out of it, I think, that will help us into, into the future. And one of the things, especially as we are also still continuing to respond to the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, mm -hmm. is that in Minnesota, we have to get over our inability to, to talk about race um, and that if we're going to actually turn the curve on these issues, we have to just name it and say it and keep saying it. I hear that. I, it's hard. I, 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 and I'm, I'm wondering about that too. Like if we name it and point it out and show it for what it is, I feel like there are folks that are open to that. And then there are folks that are really, really closed off to having that conversation. And I, I feel kind of helpless in a way mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> when trying to have those conversations. I feel that way too. Um, and, you know, uh, I feel that way as uh, a Native woman who's Lieutenant Governor a lot. Um, when, you know, we'll be on calls or in meetings uh, with folks who when I, you know, talk about white supremacy or racism, um, you know, the response will be like, don't use inflammatory language. Mm. And he says, well, I used other language before. <laughs> like that certainly, <laughs> that didn't seem to make a difference either. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, I think we just have to continue to talk about it. We are seeing clearly based on, you know, the, the current political situation we find ourselves in, um, folks are picking sides, uh, you know, you're in or you're out. Uh, and as we see this state and this country changing, becoming increasingly diverse, I think what we are also seeing is people who are in power, who do not represent the new majority mm -hmm. of the state or country are doing everything possible possible to claw and scrape and just hold on to the power that they have. And that is, I think, a, a, an expected response. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as we feel frustrated or helpless, I think, you know, there are more people who agree with us than don't. And yeah. we have to just keep pushing so that this becomes the new normal. It's like, we're going to just, we're going to name it. And we're going to push through those awkward moments in Minnesota where I call them who wants pie moments where we start to talk about race and folks get uncomfortable and, you know, like who wants pie? Like want to talk about food or something else? Like you have to push through 
those moments. Like we can have time, yeah. we can yeah. break bread together, but like, <laughs> we're still going to talk about it. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So you bring up politics. I know, mm-hmm. um, growing up, I heard family members, especially native family members talk about just really not wanting to vote. It's not always true, but a lot of times um, the native vote isn't one that is sought all the time, mm-hmm. or Indian country isn't something that's necessarily brought up in one's platform. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the native vote? Sure. So this has been something you know that I've worked on for almost the last 20 years, and uh, it's been exciting to watch um, just the evolution of civic engagement in Indian country. I think for a long time we saw, um, especially our neighbors in South Dakota, uh, when Native folks were registering and turning out to vote, they were flipping uh, U.S. Senate seats, congressional districts. um, And we've seen that happen here in in Minnesota. We may make up, you know, smaller percentages of population, for very specific reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an accident. We we have the power to you know to, to influence elections when we when we turn turn out. Um, so we started off sort of seeing that, and then we started to see more and more Native people running for political office and winning. Mm-hmm. And now we can see within um, you know Congress having Deb Holland and Sharice Davids there. It's a brand new day. Mm-hmm. Um, with the way that we're talking about issues, um, you know, Auntie Deb holding her seat <laughs> on the, the floor of, you know, of Congress with a, you know, with her blanket, like, um, you know, these are just the things that are, um, are, are happening in, in real time. Even when I think about bringing my daughter to the Capitol, mm-hmm. that's just where mommy works mm-hmm. or that's where, you know, Auntie Jamie um, you know, who's from Leech Lake, that's where she works. And it just is, it's starting to change. But I totally hear when folks say, you know, like, I don't vote in that system. That's not our system. And I can, I can feel that because these, you know, every day I get up and I walk into the Capitol and I walk into a system that was not created by us or for us, but was like literally created to eliminate us. And it's heavy. And so, you know, we all sort of carry that with us as we're, we're living and working in a society that oftentimes was not created um, with us in mind. Yeah. However, this colonial system is a system that we have. And I don't want to be passive in that system. For too long, decisions have been uh, made about us, right, without us, or things have been done to us as Native people. Voting is not the only thing. It is not the only tool in our toolbox. And in fact, it is only the first step. We need to make sure that we are, you know, then holding our elected leaders accountable, pushing for the the change we want to see and the issues that we want to see. Um, but it is not, you know, it is not the thing that is going to set us free, but it's a tool in our toolbox. And I think you see more and more candidates who do have Native platforms because we're asking about them. And you see that, you know, Indian country uh, can be quite influential when it comes to electoral politics. I don't know that um, taking us for granted anymore is the thing to do. And the work that we've tried to do uh, during our first 
two years or so in, in office has really been to create through Executive Order 1924, each state agency has to have a tribal liaison, consultation is required, and you know we have a tribal state relations office uh, now in the office of the governor. And so my hope is that that continues long after we're gone and that we're building the infrastructure to make that change. It, it's not anything that's like, oh, we should celebrate it because it's what we should have been doing for the past 162 years in this state. And that should be our expectation as Native people for government systems, period. So the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she has you know a long history in the Supreme Court and, and uh, mostly positive legacy in Indian country, though it's been kind of complicated in the past with some of the decision-making. Uh, do you have a reflection on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and maybe a comment on the importance of voting and seeing that even though the, the office is nonpartisan, Supreme Court justices are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, that it all kind of fits into voting and who's in office. For sure. I mean, it's all political, right? I was deeply shaken Mm -hmm. by the death of Justice Ginsburg. Um, And, you know, as a woman and a woman in a leadership position, or just even like a woman with a job in general, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, you know, she... Yes. Um, and as someone who uh, also uh, requires reproductive health care, like all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Like she impacted our lives in a really positive way. And so that is not lost on me. And I continue to come back to her quote, right? Like, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court when there are nine? Um, even that in and of itself just sort of challenges you to think about like, what are my own internal things that I just take, you know, like, that's just the way it is. Like, she sort of challenged us, you know, to to just think bigger. You know, and yeah, it is, her record is muddied, and it's complicated. But to be really candid, it is remarkably similar to the other liberal justices who serve on the Supreme Court. And so what it says to me is that we need more experts in Indian law, period. You know, the governor and I appoint judges all over the state, We specifically ask about treaty rights and tribal sovereignty during the interview process because we want to make sure that we are appointing more justices who have a clear understanding, right, um, of of Indian law. Uh, And so those are the, the things that I think about, you know, within this larger context of the Supreme Court. But the president, his uh, appointee, is deeply troubling. Um, and I think for, for me, and I think for Indian countries just generally, she continues to sort of lift up Scalia as her example. He was no friend to Indian country. And so that is, is troubling. While the system was not created, you know, by us or for us, it impacts us. And so making sure that we are voting for folks um, who share our values is really important. And I think, you know, Dallas Goldtooth had this post the other day, he talked about something along the lines of, do I, you know, as he was talking about the lesser of two evils, and that's, you know, we kind of go back and forth, really said, you know, sometimes I I vote for my champion, and sometimes I vote for my easier opponent. And I think as Native people, 
that oftentimes is a decision that we have to make. I don't think it will always be that way. And I think especially as more of us are running for political office, that will change. But who do you think will be more open to the ideas and the things that we care about? That's why we should be voting. The The bottom line is that uh, this election year is literally the most important of our lifetime. That's been hyperbole in the past, but it truly is. Do we believe in hope and connection to other human beings? Or do we believe in divisiveness and <laughs> not in science? <laughs> and just, you know, it's, and listen, I will just, I will say this. On election night, when the governor and I were elected and we looked at that map, it was super clear to us why we were elected. There are these beautiful pockets of blue across greater Minnesota and you could tell it, that's Indian country. Um, and so we know that. And I think other elected officials and candidates would be would do well to also know that. Great. Thank you for that. And one final question. Um, what gives you hope? Uh, you know, right now it is, it is just being in community with people. Um, and that may be virtually that may be uh, socially distanced in someone's backyard. It may be taking a hike with friends um, and just getting outside, but just that we still deeply crave that connection and relationship uh, to each other. So that gives me hope. And of course, every day being with my kiddo who um, still sees magic and opportunity all around her, um, that gives me hope and also makes me know that I have a responsibility to keep fighting so that she feels that magic and opportunity around her all the time. Wonderful. Chimigwech, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, Let's do this again. Yes. (laughs) Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations, supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. I'm Leah Lem. Today on the show, I'm talking to leaders from the state of Minnesota about lessons learned during the pandemic. Last we talked with Patina Park was in April on our show called Bidapi, which means to come laughing in Ojibwe Muin. She had been hired to work as the director of tribal state relations for the Walls Flanagan administration. But days later, the pandemic arrived and the governor declared a peacetime emergency. Our reporter, Melissa Townsend, caught up with Patina Park last week to find out how things have changed Patina was in her car driving using hands-free tech. She was on her way to pick up her children, so the audio quality is a little rough, but I think you'll be okay. Back in April, Patina Park said she was having so many conference calls every day, she was doing squats during video meetings to keep up her exercise. She was having daily conference calls with tribes. Monday through Friday, yes, 4 o'clock. Tribes are talking with commissioners from nearly every agency in the state. They had a lot to talk about, shutting down casinos and tribal businesses, trying to deliver needed tribal services without dramatic loss in revenue, who would provide tests, where would the testing happen, who would pay for the testing, where would it be reported, 
Now, much of that has been figured out. You know, what we've done now is we have pulled back to about maybe one or two a week. So we're still keeping the weekly contact, which is uh, really helpful to just keep communication moving forward. The pandemic is obviously still with us. The number of positive cases is increasing in northern and southwestern Minnesota specifically. But there are also now protocols in place to avoid getting sick and for handling positive cases when they happen. Bettina Park says the communication between state and tribal officials has helped everyone stay on top of this emergency rather than trying to play catch up to the crisis. And she feels tribal leaders have stayed true to their values of caring for one another. Like Red Lake closing their borders and really taking uh, the steps they needed to have, have paid off. I think there was a lot of worry at the state level when the tribes opened their casinos and thought that, oh, we're going to start seeing these surges now. And we didn't. Park says gaming is now open, but it's still only operating at about 20 to 50 percent, partly because of safety precautions and partly because the number of customers has decreased because so many people's income has taken a hit. In her weekly phone calls with tribes, She's hearing a lot of concerns about this loss of revenue that supports so many tribal operations. Uh, I know it's it's just challenging not knowing how long this is going to last. When we last talked, I think we all kind of felt like we were in this sprint, like running as fast as we could, as hard as we could to try to get through this crisis. And then we got to where we thought there might be an end. And we realized it's a marathon. Um, And a marathon, we don't know when it's going to end. Tribal leaders are trying to plan out how services will be run without full revenue coming in. So, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that there is no second big federal stimulus package. Um, Is that a concern? Particularly for the tribes. You know, they don't have a tax base. They They don't have a lot of the flexibility that, say, state governments do. Like, they're already operating very lean. One silver lining from the pandemic is that the close communication between the tribes and state officials has helped develop more familiarity and mutual respect. You know, working with all of the commissioners who have been attending a lot of the tribal leader calls, we've hit a point now where the commissioners and the tribal leaders have a, have a closer relationship and I would say a fuller understanding of what the commissioners' agencies do as well as like who the tribes are. Bettina Park is hopeful that the relationships that have developed will continue to grow. And so we're now kind of trying to strategize on how can we implement this as a embedded process so that no matter who's the governor, even if it's someone who has a contentious relationship with tribes or doesn't see the value of that partnership, this work continues. And so the overall goal is to have tribes more of an essential partner and the beginning of policymaking? Yeah, or to have input. But they are valuable partners to the state. Um, and, and both the state government and the tribes that share lands with the state can learn from each other. Tina Park says she'll continue to work with tribes and state agency staff to build partnerships that both strengthen the tribes and the state. That was reporter Melissa Townsend speaking to Patina Park. Thank you, Melissa. 
And thank you to our guests today, Bettina Park and Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. And Chimigwech to you for listening today. As we hurry ahead with our lives and work and school, it helps to take some time to think about what we've learned and be mindful of our relationships and community connections. And I know I've learned a lot from having conversations with all our great guests here. Thank you, Miigwech, and I wish you health. I'm Leah Lem. Minnesota Native News Special Edition COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by the Minnesota Department of Health.